Base Camp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources in how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome, and let's get started. We're hearing much about the man box and toxic masculinity these days, and with good reason. The man box has been implicated in high suicide and depression rates among men. It's been implicated in gun violence. It's been implicated in how poorly men take care of themselves. And it's been implicated in tens of thousands of failed marriages. Now, what is the man box? First and foremost, it's an outdated suit that no longer fits us men. And here are some of the characteristics of the outdated man box. Alpha male, dominance, conformity, using ridicule and sarcasm to keep women and weaker men in place, stuff your feelings and never talk about them, be tough, get women into bed, focus solely on making lots of money, don't be too affectionate with your friends, and go it alone when things get rough. These will all prove that you're a man. It's brutal sounding, isn't it? This is the cultural training we all received as boys and take into manhood, and it's toxic. And I want to be clear, men are not toxic. This box that we've been cultured in is toxic, and we need to co-create a healthier version of masculinity so that men and boys can expand and thrive as unique members of the male tribe. This is the work we're all involved in. And I'm excited to interview Mark Green today. Mark is an expert on man box culture and the steep price that men pay by living inside it. Mark is an activist, author, speaker, and senior editor at The Good Men Project. He is the founder of Remaking Manhood, a Facebook community promoting a wide-ranging conversation about men. Mark's articles on masculinity have been shared a half million times on social media with 20 million page views. He has written and spoken about men's issues at Salon, Shriver Report, Huffington Post, BBC, and The New York Times. Mark is the author of The Little Me Too Book for Men, as well as Remaking Manhood. And all of Mark's books are available at Amazon. Here is my interview with Mark Green. Enjoy. When you mentioned your son, too, that like your kind of questions around masculinity, having a son, I have a son as well. What are the things I can help assist him and bridge over so that he doesn't feel as confused or Mm-hmm. alone or just kind of is this what men do just kind of isolate and don't talk about what's going on do you know what i mean right 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 um, right well i uh, if i can use a, a sports metaphor i consider myself to be alignment blocking for him as he yeah. learns <laughs> a lot about what's going on on the field of play and the key to all of this is this if i can just drag this metaphor out painfully <laughs> is that the the field of play if you use the football metaphor is a box Mm-hmm. And what I want him to know is that he can put that football down and walk out the gate and leave that field of play, which in the work I do, um, there's a lot of different folks talking about this idea of the man box. But sure. it, was orig- it was originated by a guy named Tony Kivel in Oakland in the 1980s. He worked with a group called the Oakland Men's Project. They went to high schools, middle schools and high schools, and they asked boys, what is a man? Mm-hmm. And what they got back was just a series of rules that were consistent across populations, across yeah. regions, across race, across culture, ethnicity, level of income, all that. Yeah. And the rules of the man box are what I consider to be that the field cliches. that yeah. our kids are stuck in. And, and the rules 
the number one rule of the man box is don't show your emotions, but it's also get a lot of women, make a lot of money, be dominant, be powerful, be a leader, have the last word, be sports focused. All of these things make up the man box. And for me, I wanted to understand if that's what we do as men, then what are we not doing? And for my son, I want to share with him that there's a much broader, wider, more expansive expression of masculinities, masculinities, then then the world's going to tell you. Right, exactly, exactly. I think that's beautifully put. I mean, I've done a ton of, you know, what would be called men's work with the Mankind Project and lead men's groups. And I still feel like I'm a lineman, like prepping my boy. And he's got a few more resources because of my training. But I still, you know, I've made the box bigger, but I still have a box that I live in about what a man is, you know. And We, we all do. We yeah, all do. and so he may not really like the box that I have, even though it's a bigger box than the macho guy that never talks about anything. And I'm, yeah. I'm a big proponent of living from the heart and really listening to your heart and taking good care of yourself as a man. But he might have some notions that are, you know, that I haven't quite addressed. When we say don't show your emotions, what we're basically teaching our sons is do not connect do not acknowledge authentic connection in relationship to others. Do not share authentic connection. And that has a, has a devastatingly isolating effect. Mm-hmm. So you, you isolate men, you train them into policing each other, and this creates an ongoing level of anxiety, which ultimately results in violence. But the other thing that's really important to understand is what do we say to our sons when they cry? What do we say to our friends when they show doubt or fear? What's the word we use? What are you, a girl? What are you, a fag? What are you, a sissy? So we are denigrating women and LGBTQ people as a way to police emotional expression in our sons. And in that moment, we strip away from them the years of trial and error effort that we need as human beings to grow those natural human capacities to relate nuanced and authentic ways. We're stripping that out of them. And we're teaching them that the only way left to express masculinity is through privilege and a version of masculinity, which is about inequality, that those people, women and LGBTQ people are less. It's an, it's an ugly machine. And, and ultimately men look up when they're 50 and they say, well, I, I did everything by the book. I, I did the rules. I made the money. I, I slept with the women. And I'm not quite sure why I'm even here. Right, right, right. You, 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 did the, you did the Mankind Project. We both did the Mankind Project's New Warrior training. It was different for me than for you because you had already been immersed in these conversations around men and masculinity with the Good Man Project. So you were writing about these topics, exploring it intellectually, and then you did this rite of passage that the Mankind Project offered. Mine was different. I was, I was quite a bit younger, and I, mm. I didn't really have any experience nor curiosity at the time. I got offered to go do the training a second time. The first time, I was too scared to say yes to it, and I ended up doing it, and that was really, it was an initiation in that it opened up a mission that was around what you and I are talking about, serving men, serving this conversation. And then it was my great honor and privilege to be a facilitator on the weekend. And I became a lead facilitator for the group work in New York City. And it's a work that I still provide for men. I, I just started a new men's group, you know, last Monday. To me, men's groups are so vital and important 
And I just wondered, what was your experience? Because sometimes I think when men have a lot of experience on a particular topic, in this case, men, masculinity, how to break the break the man box or break the isolation that men feel, you came in later with, you know, kind of more chops intellectually than I did. And what was your takeaway coming out of it? What were the maybe a couple of big things that you took from the weekend coming out of it? I just kind of shared what mine were. And I was I was 37 when I did it and was a new mm-hmm. any of this stuff. For me, it was a true initiation and a completely like, oh my God, I I had no yeah. idea that this was going to have the impact. And I had no idea that I was going to create a mission that was around assisting men in feeling more empowered and feeling more emotionally connected to themselves. Right. Well, somebody said to me yesterday, um, the longest journey any man will make in his life is the 18 inches from his head to his heart. Yeah. <laughs> and I could, I could sit at my computer and write and try to understand and, and look at the research and look at what other men have said and look what other men have done and express even emotionally about how these things had impacted me. And my writing has been very, very widely read. Millions of people have read this stuff because I know what the, I know that what the data says in terms of the, the reads and the shares and all that. And that's a very, it's a very empowering experience, but it's all happening above my chin, right? And at some point, we have to look at our own experience as men. And for me, I came to some ugly realizations about my own life. Uh, one was I was nothing short of desperately lonely. And no matter how much my work resonated for people, it didn't address that. I also had a lot of trauma that I had never processed around my interactions with boys and men growing up. And my story is one of disconnection and of violence, right? I had a brother who was brutal. He just would never, he would never stop, never. I grew up at a time when man box culture generated a lot of physical violence against kids who were too small or this or that or the other. You talked about guys who don't fit in. Um, I was one of those. I had a very late puberty. So I was small. I was a target. All of this to say, I I looked at the Mankind Project and a guy named Boyson Hodgson invited me to come. And I said, okay, I'm going to go. But I went mindful that I had this, literally this, um, the best way to envision it for me is a stone. I had this stone sitting in my gut and it had been there for decades. And it felt like grief and loss and tears and my own disgust with myself. Yep. That's what it felt like, just yep. sitting there. And I could, I could look away from it by chasing women. I could look away from it by having a drink. I could look away from it by writing a really good article and having everybody pat me on the back and say, what a great job I did with that. I could do a million different things to try to earn my way past that, but that stone was still there. And when I went on the carpet with those men and I said to them, I hate men. I fear men. They are a threat, which I track to this day. And I'm sick of being alone. You said, you mentioned a couple of things about the weekend. One of the things that I thought was so brilliant is every man goes through roughly 65 processes. So, and they use the, the four archetypes of the mature masculine, warrior, lover, king, magician, and the archetypes are kind of balanced based on those energies. But when you come off the weekend, when I started talking to the men that I'd been on my weekend with after, and I asked them, you know, what were the two or three most powerful processes? Originally, I thought the ones that I had were going to be the ones they had, but every single man had different processes that were his Mm. highlights of the weekend. And then when I ended up staffing, I saw 
you know, they always do it the same way. The processes are always lined up in the same sequence mm -hmm. but that every single man had a different, that was yeah. the greatest on Sunday or Friday night when that happened, that was why I came, you know, and what a brilliantly structured rite of passage that your ahas, your biggest moments that you will never forget are different than the processes I did, but we both have this transcendent experience of I'm not alone. Uh, there's a natural brotherhood that I'm plugged into now that wasn't there prior. And I've sent a bunch of men on it. My, my own father went through the weekend and it is still to me the Cadillac of the ones out there. There's, there's a lot of stuff you can do and, and there's workshops all over for men, but I still think that one has got a real special place because of the care that has been taken to construct it as a hero's yeah. journey. And that there's yeah. so many different processes that are powerful lined up one after the next, right? Well, there's a, you know, your comments bring a couple of things to mind for me. And one of them is that when you take a model like that and run a program which is carefully crafted mm -hmm. and consistent across tens of thousands of men, yep. and you keep finding out that different things mean different aspects of the process or what, or what are the most resonant moments for those men, what it is telling us in no uncertain terms is how diverse men are. Yes. how different their experiences yeah. of the world are, how different the challenges they bring, the wounds that they bring, all the things that we bring as individuals. This is not a cookie cutter process. It's a process that invites us to bring our distinctive strengths and our distinctive fears into that space mm -hmm. and come to know ourselves, right? And that's what is so marvelous to me because when, when you walk into a, an MKPI group, or even when you walk into that weekend, I, for the first time in my life, realized after a few hours of being there, certainly after a day, that I, I didn't have to threat track anymore. I didn't have to track which man in that room was going to front up on me and try to dominate me. Yes. I didn't have to threat track what I was saying. Oh, what are you, a sissy? What are you, a girl? What are you, a fag? I didn't have to deal with the constant policing and microaggressions and just bullshit. Yeah, totally. That, that our daily lives with men subject us to. So that's the sound of, that's the silence of the anxiety of tracking other men as a threat. When yeah. that ends, oh my God, it's like air comes into the room for the first time. Have you ever staffed? I have not. I need to. You, I, I need to go wash dishes in the back, man. Yeah, I, just I need mean, to be that, there. Yeah, that, watching, being part of the kitchen crew is great, but. I, I highly recommend staff. I know, I know. You I got to do it. I got to do it. I know. Other, you see the other side of it. You see all the heart energy and care that goes into getting yes. ready for these 40 men that are coming in. And it yes. is a beautiful thing to be a part yeah, of. Yeah, I got to go. You sleep even less. I mean, you're just, you're ragged, but it's such a beautiful way to serve. And um, yeah, I, I, I've been, I've been told you don't know the full experience until you staff. Exactly. And, exactly. and so I got to, I got to get there and I have to do that because it's a rich part of being a human being. When you go through a process that's that focused and committed in a community of people whose goal is the same, right? Yeah. It's to create that connection that men are, are longing for and that, that communities used to have. You know, 200, 300 years ago, there was just a different way of being a man. And now we can find that again. But it's a question of choosing to move in that direction. And men, yeah. anyone who's listening to us right now, I would say to you, if you've been thinking about it, and if it's been nagging at you in the back of your mind, and if you're saying, maybe I should do that, take the step, man. Just take it. Totally. 
I interviewed uh, John Wilson. He's a leader. You know, he's he's one of the leaders of that New York community. He has staffed like 55 staffings, just super skilled, you know, and he was talking about when you're on staff, you know, because we all have boys and he's like, when you're on staff, you don't do a lot with your boy if he's coming through, but you're one of the uncles for your friends, boys, when they go through. So staffing's kind of like you're, you're one of the uncles that's initiating mm. all the other men's boys as they're coming through, you know what I mean? And so beautifully put, and I'm like, yeah, because I have a 12-year-old, and and so does John. How old's your son? 13. 13, yeah, we all have boys the same age. And so we're, you know, I'm kind of, you know, we're all talking, and how old, and when you're going to send him through, John's like, well, I'm just going to listen to him. And I think, you know, I think I'll know when it's time, and I'm just, he knows what I do. He knows that I'm passionate about this. And the other thing I wanted to say to you or ask you is, to me, I was talking to my wife the other day. I had a friend that I know whose 22-year-old boy committed suicide. And it was just so heartbreaking to hear the news. It seems like almost every day there is some other news story about a boy who is isolated and picks up a gun and does some violence to himself or to uh, other people. And I, I was talking to my wife and I said, I don't know how we do this, but we we have to start to get the boys used to group dynamics. We almost have to create this like, you know, the men's groups are great, but all the men in my groups are my age or all these middle-aged guys that have, they're receptive to it now because they're tired of the isolation. How do we start to build conversations for your son and my son and, and the next generation where circling up with eight boys and maybe don't run it the same way, but where it becomes a part of their lives where they have their own way in their peer group to say, hey, I got your back. I felt, you know, I felt scared when I went into middle school or high school where there can be some authentic sharing. I, I don't know how it gets created, but it seems like how do we put group dynamics in for the young boys so that my friend's 22-year-old son has some place to unpack his anxiety and fear and shame so that he doesn't mm-hmm. pick up a gun and kill himself at the beginning yeah. of his adult life when he's got everything in front of him that he can learn how to, that there's other resources than isolation in the man box, you know? Uh, right, how, right, how right. How do we put those things into place? Well, I wish I could give you a solution for that kind of a model. Yeah. Because it's complex, but I will tell you this. There's a woman who wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys. Her name's Judy Chu. And there's an, also another woman, a researcher, she wrote a book called Deep Secrets. Her name is Niobe Way. There is ample research and ample evidence to show us quite clearly that our culture of masculinity takes our boys and shames them for their closest and most meaningful relationships. Yep. Judy Chu, in her book, she was, in a, she was embedded in a pre-K class. So we're talking about four-year-old boys here. She was there for two years. She followed this cohort of boys and girls in this little school. And a little boy comes up to her, he's four years old, and he says, Miss Chu, I'm friends with the girls, but don't tell Bill, the leader of the boys group, because if he finds out I'm friends with the girls, he'll kick me out of the group and I won't have a group anymore. Now that sounds like, you know, oh, gee, that's too bad. That kid can't talk to the girls. What the heck, you know? I mean, it's bad enough that he's not going to be able to be in an ongoing back and forth to grow a sense of how to have nuanced communication across difference, that's bad enough. Yeah. But what we really need to notice in that story is that you have a four-year-old boy who is already tracking the alpha male in his cohort 
and who is already stripping away authentic forms of expression from himself that he sees as not fitting in. Now you jump to Niobe Way's work. She interviewed boys who were in early adolescence, uh, 13, 14. And she would say, what does your best friend mean to you? That was her question. She's asked, she's done this work for 10 years. She's asked hundreds, if not thousands of boys, this question. And all the boys at that age would say unabashedly, they'd use, it's like a harlequin romance. They'd use the word love. They say, oh, I yeah. love my best friend. Oh, yeah. And the other thing they would say, uniformly, they would say, without my best friend, I would go crazy. Then four or five years later, when these, when these young men, same young men, she would go back and interview them, when they were 16, 17 years old, they would say, yeah, my best friend, you know, Mike, he still lives around the corner, but I don't see him that much anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's a great basketball player, no homo, great basketball player, but I don't see him that much. So they'd throw in that phrase, no homo, if they said anything kind about that person. Another kid said, yeah, you know, that's, that friendship, it's kind of on a crossfade. It's kind of going out. And what she found out was that these boys had been told over and over again what not to be. What they were told not to be is a little kid, girly, or gay. And for them to prove they were none of those things, they disengaged from those friendships. And at that point in time is when boys' suicide rate jumps to four times that of girls. So if there's any work we can do with our sons, it is to encourage the close friendships that they create in the mm -hmm. world and to do whatever is necessary in conversation daily to model that for them with our male friends, close, affectionate friendship where yeah. we express emotionally, where we hug, where we connect. MKP's got this down. Totally. So we need to model that for our sons and we need to encourage communication, connection, conversation. Because this idea that somehow adolescents don't talk to us anymore, I would bet you money that we disengage from them because we cannot handle their growing independence, their yeah. need to differentiate. We cannot manage that. We can't give up the control that we had when they were little and said, yes, dad, sure, dad, I'll do it, dad. Right. So we need to stay in that rich, difficult conversation with them. We need to model close friendship and we need to encourage them to stay in close friendship with their friends. Because that is the point at which the poison sets in, right? Yeah. The poison of isolation. And I don't know if you're aware of the stats on it in the U.S., but the AARP did a study in 2010, and they found out that one out of every three Americans age 45 and older is chronically lonely. They have no one to talk to. Totally. And Sigma did a study last year. One out of every two Americans is either sometimes or always feeling alone. Yeah. And when you have what's called chronic loneliness, it's equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day in terms of the health impact. It increases your likelihood of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, every neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, uh, in, you know, everything, everything. Yeah. I see a ton of men, 40, 50, 60, and when you start talking to them, you realize they've got one friend, maybe, that doesn't even mm -hmm. live in their town. That I mean, I think... Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm a real champion of the Mankind Project. I come out of it. It's, it's, it's part of my life and part of my community. But I've been blessed my whole life with French, male friendships, but no more so than when I came out of the training. I've been in so many different men's groups, and these men really care and, I, and know me, and I know and care for them. And there's just, just natural affection 
and mm-hmm. playfulness. And, you know, I think, I think if men really knew the depth of the male friendships that come out of it, they would be clamoring at the door to get in because I, I, the men that don't and have no friends or one friend, you can just see, you can see it in their body language. You can see it in their eyes that, you know, God, I did, like you said earlier in the conversation, I did everything right. And here I am with one friend that lives across the country and I, I might see him every couple of years. And is that it? Like how, and then, then the men don't know how to really step into any, like, do I just go to the gym and start talking to other guys? Like, how do I even develop friendships? And I think right. the great thing about MKP and the men's groups is that it's a built-in structure for speaking authentically and speaking in your heart of the challenges mm-hmm. you're facing. And it, you find out quickly, oh, we're all in the same boat together. It doesn't matter what skin color, sexuality, nationality, we're all in this together. And um, it's a big gift that's waiting for men if they can sort of lean in and get over the bridge. But thank you. Thank you for, for everything you do to raise the bar, to sort of open up new conversations around men and to help particularly the boys that are coming up find a, a healthier version of masculinity that we didn't have, that we've had to sort of learn our way into this new territory. So thank you so much for the conversation today, Mark. Well, I sure appreciate it. And thanks for reaching out for it. I, I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person and doing that staffing. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Mark Green, and I want to thank Mark for everything that he does to help men. I'm reading Mark's book, The Little Me Too Book for Men right now, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's only 75 pages long and addresses the core question of what the hell happened to us as men. Go pick up a copy for yourself at Amazon. You can read it all during your next airplane ride. One of the many insights I got from Mark was how boys are cultured to start pulling away from their best friends when they reach a certain age, lest they be labeled as a sissy or homosexual. It's a vicious cycle that doesn't serve our boys, nor does it lead to healthy men. This is the first of what I hope to be many conversations designed to break apart the outdated man box and look for new ways that boys and men can support and empower one another. That's our show for today. Men, remember that the story of your life is not yet all told. I'm Tony Rezac, and thank you for listening to Basecamp for Men.